Good morning. We are wrapping up a really great focus as a church. And for the last 12 weeks, we've been looking at the art of following Jesus. And this morning, my desire is to kind of bring it all to some closure, to a, to a, to a decision that we make together, a commitment that we make together, and it's based upon a longing, the greatest longing in your life. Let me ask you a question. What keeps you up at night? Now, that may be a little what keeps you up, or it may be a figurative what keeps you up. You know, you know what the answer is for me? When I just can't sleep, and maybe sometimes that's really true, but it, mostly it's what is what I'm most focused on. And you know what that answer is? It's you. I mean that. It's you. The one thing that has driven me for 35 years committing my life to Christ and to help in ministry is to help you. I mean that. I want the best for you. It's what drives me. I want to see you flourish. I want to see you find peace. I want you to find the source of peace. I want you to find the anchor of your soul that lives in eternity. I want, to find, I want to help you find your purpose for living that far exceeds worldly endeavors. I want you to grow as a follower of Christ. And, and, and in one sense, it's a longing. In another sense, it haunts me. I mean, it's, it's so part of who I am, it haunts me. When I use the, the word haunt, I think of uh, a book that was written in the 70s by Norman MacLean, The River Runs Through It. Do you ever read that book? Do you ever see the movie? River Runs Through It, one of the best movies I have seen. It's a, it's a passion of mine because for 35 years, I not only have committed my life to Christ and to caring for people in ministry. But we built a cabin 35 years ago in, La in Idaho near the Snake River. And my brother, my sisters, mom and dad, we used to go out and spend a lot of time on the Snake River fishing. And I remember those times with my brother and my father fly fishing. And Norm, Norman McLean tells the story in River Runs Through It that's very similar to the story that I have experienced of his family growing up in Montana next to the Blackfoot and experiencing in a home uh, a life, a father that was a Presbyterian minister, but a life around the river. And so at the end of his life, he writes these words as he looks back, now that all, that he, all whom he has loved are gone, his wife, his brother, his mother, and his father. And now it's just him alone in a river, casting out a small fly, hoping to catch a trout. And he writes these words, looking back on his life, and he says it. Eventually, all things merge into one, and a river runs through it. The river was cut by the world's great flood and runs over rocks from the basement of time. On some of the rocks are timeless raindrops. Under the rocks are the words, and some of the words are theirs. That is the words of his family that tell the story. I am haunted by the waters. That's what he says. I am haunted. The words of family, the memories of the past, the remembrance of what was most important in his life. And you know what I am haunted by? I am haunted by developing you in Christ. The mystery of Christ is you in him. It's what drives me. Colossians chapter 1, in verse 9, it says, And so, from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, and understanding so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord. That's what Paul desires, is you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Later in that same chapter, he says these words, 
To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The great mystery to Paul is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ living in you that brings you a hope that is the greatest glory in all of life. And then he says, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone teleos, mature, complete in Christ. The word teleos means to be perfect, complete, all in order. Paul's life was focused on developing Christ in his followers, in his disciples, and those that would come alongside him and those that came to Christ so that they might become mature in Christ. And then he says, to such an extent, to this end, I strenuously contend with all energy. Christ so powerfully works in me. Christ is working in me. And it's like I'm an athlete, Paul says, and I am working hard. I am running a race and I have an objective. I have a goal and that's you. That's my greatest longing. And this morning, we've been talking about discipleship for the last 12 weeks. And I believe all of this boils down into one idea, one concept that will help us mature in Christ, become perfect in Christ, complete in Christ. And that is the life of discipleship. That's what it is. The words and ways of Jesus in you will make you complete. That's why it's not a series, it's a focus. And that's why we are gonna continue on in our pursuit of being disciples of Jesus by living according to the words and ways of Jesus. That's our focus. And the question is, how do we even get on that road? I want to suggest to you something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 in verse 25 to 35. And that is a reprioritization of your longings in your life. You got to reprioritize the longings in your life to find the one longing that stands out among all other longings. We are human beings with longings. We all long for things. We long for desires. We, are, we, are, we long all the time for something. And what Jesus says is it's a matter of pre-prioritizing those, reprioritizing those, so that the greatest longing controls all of the longings in your life and you will now be on the path of discipleship. That's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, 25 to 35. Let's read it together. So here we go. So as I turn to Luke 14, Jesus says these words. A large crowd was going along with him and he turned and said to them. Now let me stop here and give you a context before I tell you what Jesus says. A large crowd. Often in Jesus' ministry, he would talk to his disciples. He would teach them. He would train them. Because Jesus was a rabbi. And rabbis taught their disciples. This was a practice, a common practice that goes all the way back hundreds of years before the time of Christ. Even in Greek culture, Plato was a, was a disciple of Socrates, was a pupil, a student, an apprentice, a learner. Even in first century Judaism, a rabbi would gather pupils around him in order to train them up on the basis of their words and their ways. It was a common way of education. In fact, there were no universities. There were no trade schools. Starting at five years of old, a Jewish children would train under a rabbi. And as they got older, they would continue in that training and, and many of them would filter off and go back into family practice uh, trades or, or, or and they would find other pursuits in life 
but this would form the foundation of their life. But the cream of the crop would continue to move up and they would continue to progress in their discipleship or in the Hebrew word, their Talmudin. They would become the Talmudin, the students of all students. And they would begin at five to begin memorizing the Torah, the first five, book, five, uh, five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Could you imagine at five years old, you begin to memorize that much text? I remember when I was in college, I, I set out, I was going to start memorizing Romans, and I got to Romans chapter six. It took me three years. It's a long process. Now, earlier start, the better it goes. I encourage people to memorize scripture young in their life because they will have it for the rest of their lives. One of the most valuable things you could do is to learn the practice of memorization. And that was the tool that, that, that the rabbi would use in the, the training of the Talmudin, the student, the pupil, the apprentice. And Jesus was a rabbi. And he had those Talmudin that gathered around it. But it was far more than simply just learning the scriptures or learning the words. It was about learning the ways. The Talmudin would spend all of their waking days and nights with their rabbi. They would live with their rabbi. They would study them. They would eat, drink. They would travel. They would learn all of their ways and they would practice what they saw. They would become like their rabbi, their master. Jesus was Kyrios, a master. He was identified in scripture as the Lord, the master, the one to follow. That's why we follow him. In fact, remember in, in the gospels when Peter got out of the boat to walk on the water? Do you know why he did that? I mean, you ever thought of that question? Why did Peter get out of the boat to walk on water? Because he saw Jesus doing it. If Jesus could walk on the water, I need to learn how to walk on the water because I want to be a Talmudin. That was the whole point. They, their whole focus of their life was around replicating the life of the rabbi. That's discipleship. That's what Jesus is teaching us. He wants us to enter into relationship with him so that we might learn his ways and learn his words and follow his life. It was an oral culture. They would memorize, but they would also follow and become like. You know, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the very last thing Jesus says to his disciples, one thing. Lasting words, last words are lasting words. You know the last thing Jesus said? One of the last things he said is go make disciples. You know, one objective in life. Go make disciples. Not build big churches. Not run programs. Do one thing and this one thing for the rest of your life. Make disciples. Enter into a discipleship relationship with Jesus and with one another, we want to continue on helping other people become disciples of Jesus. That's why we just spent 12 weeks. We spent some, uh, the first uh, three weeks on our first value, which is our relationship with God. And then we transitioned to our relationship with one another. And we talked about this idea of koinonia, fellowship deep connection, how we need each other. And then we transition to our role, how we play a part, our giftedness in the church, in the community. You got to be part of a community of believers because God's equipped you to help so that you function well in, the, in that church and the church functions well because of you. And then finally, fourth, to share the mission, evangelism, the mission of the church. So we looked at all four of those areas because they make up what it looks like to be a disciple. Now, all of that is context for what Jesus is about to say. And here's what he's going to say. He looks out at the crowd. He's talking to his disciples and there were always larger crowds. So people would come. They want to hear what the rabbi had to say. And Jesus allowed people around him and, and he looked out at the crowd 
talking to his disciples and he says, if anyone wants to come to me, what Jesus is offering is Talmudine relationship with him for all. You don't have to be the cream of the crop. You don't have to be the, the 12. You don't have to be the best of the best. Every single follower of Christ has the opportunity to be a Talmudine. Come out of the crowd. Come away from public thinking, from the consensus of the crowd. Come away, come out of the general population and be numbered among those that follow me. And that's the invitation Jesus offers us in this passage. Will you come out? Come out of the crowd. It's time. Maybe you're hiding. Maybe you're sinning. Maybe you're listening. Maybe you're learning. And maybe you've been in the crowd a long time. You're in the crowd of the church. Maybe you've been in the crowd of religion, the crowd of some organization. And Jesus is saying, I see you. Come out. It's time. Come. Come here. Come out of the crowd. Come to me and become a Talmudin. And if you want to, you will need to reprioritize your life based upon four longings. And here they are. So if you want to come to me and be a Talmudin, be a Mathetes, a disciple, here we go. If anyone comes to me and does not, number one, hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Then he goes on. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He moves on. For which one of you... When he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe will begin to ridicule, saying, this man began to build, was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he has strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter one coming after him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, moving on, no one can be my disciple who does not give up his possessions. Follow me. Four longings of a person's life. These are the four longings that drive you as a person. Family, self, time, and possessions. Those are the four things that Jesus identifies in this passage that have to be put in the right priority or discipleship won't happen in your life. You will remain among the crowd and will not come out and become a disciple of Jesus. Now, these are hard words, let me tell you. And I understand they're hard words because, listen, nobody wants to reprioritize their life based upon their longings. These are the longings that identify who we are as people. Your family. Your personal identity of yourself. The time. What you're building. What you're doing with your life. Like a tower. Like a warrior going out to battle. And your possessions. The things that you own. Don't mess with those things. That's what we say. I understand these are hard words. You may not like it. It may be really painful to look at. Why? It's always painful to have what we most value put in right perspective. We thrive on these priorities that focus around our desires, our longings. And Jesus is calling those into question. Why? Why does he call them into question? John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He says, if you continue in my words, if you continue to follow me in my words and live the way I lived, you will be known as a disciple of Jesus. 
And then he says in verse 32, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue, you'll learn the truth and it's going to set you free. Free from what? Free from what? Free from wrong priorities. Free from longings that have impacted you. That have consumed you. And you think about it. What, what Paul's identifying here, in the, these are the most important parts of your life, your family. But have you ever seen a family go bad? I mean, have you ever seen it in, in the wrong, in, as, it, as, it's, as it's been put in the wrong priority? Have you ever seen a family that's too controlling or that's modeling what is not healthy? It happens. I'm not suggesting that it happens all the time, but it happens. There's a great story, The Glass Castle. Jeanette tells the story of her life. Jeanette Walls tells the story of her life growing up with parents that remained homeless throughout their life and how she was able to overcome that and live a different life. Here's another question. Obsessed with self? Is it possible for our priorities to be wrong and our greatest longing is ourself? Does that happen? Is that possible? We call that narcissism, don't we? We call it a lot of things. It's, mis it's prioritized self. Hey, here's a third one. What about your time? Well, my time is mine. What I'm doing with my life is my business. Okay. You ever seen that go wrong? You ever, see, you ever meet people that pursue the wrong thing in life and then you get to the end of their life going, what just happened? Here's another one, the final one, your possessions. You ever seen anybody controlled by their possessions? I mean, really messed up. See, it's possible, but the truth will set you free. Gallup polls are very interesting and they do them all the time. About 2012, Gallup polls done in terms of how many people claim to be Christian in America. About 77% of Americans claim to be Christians. That number's dropped a little bit over the years. But if you dig into that a little deeper, and these, these other polls, independent polls that have come out since then, trying to identify what does that really mean to say I'm a Christian, and, and what they discovered is a lot of people say that, but very, very few live it. About 8% these polls indicate on the basis of certain criteria that individuals that claim to be Christians really aren't living out the disciple life based upon importance of things, based upon affiliation, based upon convictions. And they have all these things and and you see a decrease, and we've seen a drastic decrease in affiliation and connection with church and religion and community. And there's been a, a, almost a decay in terms of people that claim to be a Christian that are actually living it out and changing their lives and having that influence their decisions. You know why? The truth will set you free. When we get off a of truth, you know what's decreased along with that? The value and importance of the authority of God's word in our life. When that goes down, it begins to decrease our conviction. And what happens is we no longer believe in absolute truth. We live in a world of relativity. What's good for me is good for me. What's good for you is good for you. There's no wrong answer. And, and we've wiped out this idea that there's some truth out there that is a consistent truth that keeps us moving forward, that we evaluate our life based on. Morality. Morality is based upon what you want to do with your own life rather than an authoritative word of God that helps guide us into good practice, why? To set us free. Ask any alcoholic that has recovered from alcoholism 
And they will say, a wrong priority, a wrong longing, in the wrong order, set my life and destroyed my relationships. And I was headed for disaster. I reprioritized my life with a new longing. And all of a sudden, now I see things more clearly. See, that's what Jesus is doing. And so he's looking at these four areas of your life, your loyalty, your identity, your longevity, and your ownership. There they are. Loyalty matches with family. Identity matches with self. Longevity matches with time. And ownership matches, aligns with possessions. Comes right out of the text. First one. If anyone wants to come to me, he doesn't hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters. Yes, even his own life cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying to hate your family. The word that's actually used here is a word of comparison. In comparison to a greater love, it's a prioritizing of your loves. That's what Jesus is saying. See, it's in the Old Testament when Jacob, it says loved Rachel, but he hated Leah. He didn't hate Leah. He hated Leah in comparison to, to Rachel. He truly loved Leah or Rachel the most. The greatest love in your life sets the priority and organizes all the rest of your longings. That's what St. Augustine said. That was the primary idea of Augustine. It wasn't willpower that was going to control your life. Well, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to say. No, it's a matter of what do you really love? And Jesus is asking that question. We love family. Of course we do. Honor your mother and father. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you with a great reward. There is reward in that, in an honor system. A patriarchal system, honoring the father and honoring the family. Jesus is not trying to break up the family, but he most certainly is trying to use that to illustrate how significant your love for Christ is in your relationship, in comparison to family. I met a guy who became a good friend of mine who was, grew up in a Muslim home, converted to Christianity, gave his life to Christ, began growing in a church, and yet because of the pressure of the family, decided it wasn't worth it. It was too hard. This is too difficult. My family has rejected my decision to follow Christ. I mean, a real story. And I understand. I mean, I, I sat with him and listened. I respect this man. Very sharp individual. Brilliant. And I listened carefully as he shared his struggle and his life of how family was so strong and so powerful that it took priority. I'm, I'm, I'm just pointing that out. I remember when I went into the ministry 35 years ago, I was in commercial real estate and I made the decision to leave my profession. My wife and I, Denise and I, were married at the time and we decided it's time to go. Let's do it. Let's go in, we're going into this ministry. We're going we're gonna to go back to school. I'm going back to seminary. I'm going to get some, um, some education in, in the area of biblical theology and training. And then we're going to launch into a ministry that's going to take us, hopefully, to the end of our lives. And I remember a conversation I had with my dad. And it was a hard conversation. It was a really, it was a hard conversation to leave real estate when I sat down with the, the vice president dif, district manager of our office and said, I'm going to the ministry. And he goes, you're doing what? Are you kidding me? I mean, he said a few other things too, but uh, he just couldn't get, he couldn't understand it. But I remember my dad and I remember how difficult that was for him to understand what drove me. I'm not suggesting the only way to love Christ is to go into ministry. That's not what I'm saying. It was for me. Jesus was drawing me there based upon my love for him. Where is he drawing you? How does family fit into that? You've got to answer that question. Second thing, moving on. So loyalty. Evaluating my loyalties. Am I constantly evaluating my loyalties? St. Augustine said, 
But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order. To love them in the right order. Jesus is not saying, no, don't love your family. Don't love your th- possessions. Don't love your time. Don't love your dreams. It's not what he's saying. He's just love them in the right order. Does that make sense? So we move now into identity because when Jesus says this next thing, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Jesus is pointing at something deeply fundamental, and that is you as a person, your soul, your life, yourself. The cross took all of that away as a condemned criminal in the Roman world you lost your humanity. You are no longer considered a human being, but now a possession of the state. And you were sentenced to death, and you lost all rights. You lost your humanity. You were gone. You died to humanity. And what Jesus is saying is take on this idea that you have, you have put yourself on the cross. You are setting your life aside. My old life, my old ways, my old desires, my, everything that was about me, myself. I'm a criminal. And I go to the cross. And in death comes life. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in Christ who died for me. See, what happens in this is we get a new identity. See, you don't die. It's not like this idea that we just need to crucify ourselves every day. Every day I just got to condemn myself and I'm such a horrible person. No, that's not the point. It's not like we just sit there and beat each other up and beat ourselves up every day. Don't beat yourself up. You present yourself on the cross. You're willing to hand your life over. And in that transaction, that death, you get his life because he went to the cross and now his death brings life to you and you get a new identity. That's the point. You, You now live out a new identity in Christ. And you now see yourself in light of that identity as opposed to an old identity. And that changes your priorities, doesn't it? I mean, think about that. That's what happens. And you now live in the shadow of the cross. And that's the cross of Christ. No, I know who I am. Christ tells me who I am. I'm in Christ. My total identity has changed. I'll tell you what, discipleship is possible when you understand that. Third, let me move on. That's identity. Longevity is the third one. This, what's the idea behind the, the building and the, the warrior, the king that goes into battle? You know what it's about? Finishing the task at hand. We all want to build something with our lives, and that's the point. It's about longevity. It's the rest of your life. And, 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 and how does that happen? It, it, it's more than simply trying. Well, I'm going to try this out. It's not about trying. It's about training. It's about deciding this is the person, this is the person that's like, decide I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to medical school. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to law school. I'm going to be a professional. I'm going back to school or whatever. I'm going to study in a particular trade. Why? Because that's what drives me. That's what I want to do the rest of my life. And guess what? That's where you go. You just keep going. And it, it becomes now, it's a longevity thing. You're in it for the long haul. That's what Jesus is saying. Rather than stopping and starting, you're, rather than practicing, spiritual formation is about, about training. It's, it's not trying, it's training through practice. That's the word disciple, is to practice discipline. It's, a, it's like my, my swim team. I've been on a swim team for 10 years. Sane people 
week after week after week, right through COVID, we've stopped a little bit during COVID, and right back up, everybody's right back in the pool. Why? Because it's something people want to accomplish in their life. They are driven to the water, and that's their life, and they just keep going. I've got a buddy of mine who's on the team, and he's going through cancer treatment right now, and he's going to keep on swimming. Keep on swimming. Why? It's longevity. It's, it's what they want. It's, it's what defines them. And, and, and the more we practice, the more skilled we become at doing that over the long haul. So what are you practicing? What are you training for? And finally, last thing is that Jesus says this crazy idea that if you want to be my disciple, you need to give up all your possessions. What is he really saying? He's not saying to give up all your possessions. That is, empty your bank accounts. Leave everything behind. Of course not. We need to take care of our families. We need to provide. He's talking about what owns you. You know that. It's ownership. It's about ownership. We just had bulky pickup in the South Bay, in uh, the Palos Verdes area. Bulky pickup is an interesting day for some of you. And it's a moment in time when you get to rummage through other people's stuff. And there's a lot of valuable things that people are throwing away, are there not? Some of you are shaking your head, yes, I know, because my car is now full of somebody else's stuff. And I'm not gonna point out who you are, because I saw a couple really cool pool mats, these rubberized mats that you lay on in a pool, and I grabbed those out of somebody's trash. And I think they're gonna be really cool at Lake Arrowhead. So I grabbed them, but you know what the bottom line is? Jesus doesn't say, is not saying, well, don't enjoy things. He's just saying, don't let things own you. And if you can learn how to prioritize that with Christ in the center of it, you begin to ask the question, who really owns all that I have? It frees you up. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Let's jump into some final worship as we close this morning. And let's think about it. And I, I wrote some questions down. I wrote three questions. And here are the questions. Just to think about while we worship. Who gets first priority in your life? I mean, the, be the beginning of every day, what voice do you hear first? Just ask him. Here's another one. Who do you consult with before big decisions in your life? Who do you consult with first? You might consult with a lot of people. Just a question to ask as you begin to evaluate the priorities and longings of your life. I had a third one, and it begins with who do you, and I forgot to write the rest of it. So there's a third question, and I have no idea what it is. And you're going to have to figure that one out. Is there a third question you could be asking yourself to help you evaluate the priorities and longings of your life? Father, Thank you for giving us the tough words, Jesus. May we begin to reprioritize the longings of our life based upon what you value most in Jesus' name. Amen.
is your love that compels us this morning, Jesus. So, Lord, even now, we just quiet our hearts before you. And, Lord, would you bring us back to the place where you are our first desire? And your love is so much bigger, so much better.
this morning there is no other name than yours. Thank you for being with us, Jesus. Thank you that you are our greatest hope, that you are our greatest foundation, that you are our strength. And Lord, in times of uncertainty, we call on the name of Jesus. So we call on your name this morning. We bless you, Lord. We thank you for being the Lord of our lives, the great King of our hearts. We bless you. We worship you. We ask that you would be with us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much for worshiping with us. If anything that Bill said today, oh, get ready. Godwin's going to start bringing us to real church. <laughs> a little jazz, a little gospel. So talented. Um, if you guys need prayer, Luke's in the back, Bill's in the back. I'm sure you could get one of the leaders to pray, but we'd love to just walk with you in this really encouraging and challenging message. So we bless you. We thank you, everyone online, for watching. Have a great day. Stick around for maybe some jazz. We don't have mimosas, but we got jazz. <laughs>